is knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 329. Jason Lingren is with me and basically back finally is Wayne McCroy. And by the way, before I jump in, Wayne, when are you launching your podcast? I still haven't decided on a release date for the podcast version of things yet, but I, I am uh, over on Rockfin now. And uh, if people want to go sign up over there on Rockfin to check out some of the material I've been producing there lately, uh, I do plan on trying to use that as like a, a primary platform to push some of my other stuff. So uh, I am working on uh, potentially putting together a website of my own and actually doing a, a podcast format uh, similar to yours here with a first hour free and a second hour paid content. Uh, but that's still going to be a while in the works yet. Uh, I, I don't have uh, the time just yet to really devote to a full-time website on all of this. So uh, I haven't really announced any kind of a, a release date for that, but that will be coming in the near future. Okay. Uh, when you get ready to do it, uh, we'll try to leverage out so we can give people the option to go check out what you're laying down. All right, let's just get to it here. We've got so much to get through. This episode is all about tuning in the human mind to understand what media does, what sci-fi does, what the mainstream narrative does to turn your mind into Pavlov, or actually Pavlov's dogs. So later in life, a bell is rung. You don't even know the bell's been rung, and there you are salivating, just like Pavlov's dogs. That's what this is all about. This is predestination. This is preceding, pre-echoing. This is warping the human mind so it becomes malleable uh, in ways that the possessor of the mind doesn't even know they've been manipulated. So we're going to lay down some definitions to start. First of all, what we are covering here is a movie called 2001 Space Odyssey. Um, this is an important, important um, movie. And to be fair, we all just read the book again. The book is crap. The movie is crap. That's my opinion. Other people might have a different opinion. It's self-serving and it's kind of grotesque when you grow the eye to see with. Um, but let's get right into it here. The first thing on everybody's to-do list is when you're looking at a thing, you need to understand what words mean. You need to understand why things are named the way they are. So let's start with 2001. It's called a space odyssey. Well, why is it called odyssey? Jason and actually Wayne and I have covered very in-depth things like Ovid and the Trojan War and other things. You will find that the powers that be in this world are always trying to connect themselves to these heroic godly figures from the Homeric time of period or Greek myth in general. Well, why are they doing it? Because of the Trojan War. Well, why does the Trojan War matter? Because they're going to claim that the Trojans were knocked over by heroes and they went on to found Rome. All roads lead to Rome. So it's their backstory linking heroic ancient deeds to bolster up the things they supposedly do out of Rome. But let's jump into it. What does the word Odyssey mean? The initial uh, definition, if it's in italics, do you get it? If it's Italian, um, an epic poem <clears throat> attributed to Homer, everyone knows it. But when it's lowercase, it's a long series of wandering adventures, especially when it's filled with notable experiences and wait for it, hardships. All right, now let's get on to the number 2001. Pay attention here because we drop this all the time. And it occurred to me that people might not understand why 2001 matters beyond the fact that 9-11 occurred. 
this movie pre-echoed 9-11. So does 2010, the movie that follows it, which we'll touch on. First off, Blackjack equals 11. Are you with me? Uh, it's almost always shown with a one-eyed jack. There's something. And that jack is valued at 10. The ace that makes the blackjack that's shown with it is valued at one. So blackjack is basically 11. It is often showed with a one-eyed jack of spades and an ace equaling one. It's also another meaning for blackjack is a short leather covered club consisting of a heavy head on a flexible handle used as a weapon. All right. It also means to coerce by threats and wait for this one. There's a mineral called sphalerite, which is the most important zinc. And it comes from the Greek word sphaleros, which means deceiving or treacherous. The color is black. There's a couple things that I just want to get in here. First of all, blackjack as a game is a banking game. It's a world global banking game consisting of 52 cards. And it's the descendant of a global family of banking games known as 21. It also includes a British game called Pontoon and a European game called Winged et Un. One more thing. Here's just an offhand thing to know when people walk into casinos. The house always wins. Check this out. When you're playing 21, which is the most popular game played in casinos, if you use a single deck, the house advantage is 0.17. Two decks, 0.46. Four decks, 0.60. Six decks, 0.64. And if you use eight decks, 0.66 is the house advantage. And the house always wins. So there's the main things to understand about what we're about to cover. And now it should be no mystery to you why 2001 encodes 21, which is blackjack, which is a negative connotation. There is no definition of the idea of blackjack that is positive and anything but weapon-like. All right. So let's jump in. Sorry about all that. Welcome, Jason. And good morning. So, so much to lay down here. Uh, You just want to jump in. Wayne's got copious notes here. Yeah. A little background, I think, on the differences between the film and the book. The official narrative, both by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick, says that the film and the book were kind of done at the same time, and they end up being deferring almost to the point, not quite a different story, but it's almost like they have the same skeleton, but what's on the outside built on that skeleton is very, very different. Kubrick went incredibly esoteric, obviously very image-driven, as you would expect from someone like Stanley Kubrick. But there's esoteric stuff all through the film that is absolutely not in the book. The book is a straightforward, old-school science fiction story, very drawn out in details, details upon details, uh, almost to the point of being boring. Now, whether the intentions behind the book and the film are different, I guess that's up to the observer. But the original title was supposed to be something like Journey Beyond the Stars or something like that. And then all of a sudden, it got shifted around, and then they dated it by calling it 2001 A Space Odyssey, and you got to wonder why that was so. All right, so let's just cut to the chase here. What these men did is they warped the minds of the world to precede the idea of what space is. That's what the movie did. It put in everyone's mind in technicolor filmed at a very high level what you need to accept space is. And when did it do it? April 2, 1968. What's about to happen in the 60s, which we will be covering, is the moon landing, which is all fake. The other thing they're doing is they're encoding the coming operational outing of the world takeover, which will happen on September 11, 2001. It's even in the title, 2001. I mean, what would you add to all that, Wayne? 
I would add that uh, many of these things have been pre-echoed for us uh, well ahead of time. And this was one of the primary platforms that they they did so. Uh, Kubrick, uh, he was a big-time insider in, into a lot of different things. So uh, he was given the uh, carte blanche to, to run with this whole thing uh, by Arthur C. Clarke. From what my understanding is, Arthur C. Clarke gave him a bunch of different manuscripts uh, that he had to choose from in order to put together this movie. I mean, this this was years in the making. I mean, people don't uh, necessarily understand that. Uh, it was released in 1968, but uh, they started filming, I think, in 64 or 65 or started putting together the, uh, the, the precepts for it then. Yeah, they had a get-together in 64, and, and then it worked from there, and they kind of went back and forth for a while until Kubrick started getting the shooting done. And there was so much pre-production that went into it. That's why it took years. Kubrick did some very groundbreaking work with the film as far as special effects and things go. Yeah, well, he had an inside hookup too, didn't he? As we all know, at the end of that movie back in the 60s, there were all these nods to NASA. NASA, thank you for these great cameras and great lenses and all these things he borrowed. That is later ripped out of the film because people are starting to wake up and draw the lines back. This movie was directly tied to NASA and the look and the feel and the tools that he had, no one else had. But why would they take the time to rip out all the credits to NASA? If you see that film now, they're not there. I'm guessing both you guys have noticed that. That was intentional. Yep. They left all those credits out. There's a very famous picture of Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick with a bunch of NASA people. And by the way, there is no mention of NASA that I can think of either movie, actually, 2001 or 2010. No, that's that's the thing. I mean, uh, they're kind of by their their being missing from this. There's kind of a glaringly obvious point being made there. They don't want to draw attention to NASA because uh, in so doing, it's kind of showing their hand as to to what's going on with this. And I don't think the time was right back in 1968 when this was released for them to uh, kind of put it out there for everybody to understand at that point that what was to come with the NASA space missions and stuff was all pretty much faked and staged and uh, made on a Hollywood soundstage. Uh, And I I think uh, Kubrick really had a big hand in a lot of this. And he he did uh, wind up using those special cameras that uh, NASA allowed for him to use with this. And you got to wonder, why did they do that? And there's there's a whole history and story that goes along with that, whether it's true or not, who knows? I mean, I, I think a lot of this should probably come to public knowledge within the next couple of years, whether or not uh, that whole story with Kubrick filming the this moon landing and stuff like that is true or not. But they put a lot of points in there to obfuscate things and kind of draw a question to that narrative. So people will discard that. Uh, and it's, it's one of those things where it's revelation of the method. And here it is years after the fact. And uh, we're just now beginning to see some of the games that have been played here. And it's amazing how they always put these little mind hooks out there for anybody who's interested in looking at this stuff to try to uh, like break it down and and figure out how we've been misled. So like this whole thing with Kubrick coming out with that interview and saying he filmed the moon landings and stuff like that. And people will argue that's not really Stanley Kubrick. But uh, I mean, who knows for sure what the truth is with that whole situation. But that was publicly and purposely released in order to draw more obfuscation on this whole moon landing event and, you know, the, the programming that went into this 2001 A Space Odyssey film. And this was, it still held up as one of the most highly regarded films today. So it's an important part of our pop culture, okay? And that's, that's what they do. This is put out there to shape what our viewpoint is of what space is. 
And that's the bottom line with a lot of this. They've been trying to carefully craft what they want us to believe is outer space, so to say. Uh, and that that's, I think, one of the big takeaways from this whole thing is this was put out into the public consciousness to shift man's uh, views of what it is that space is. And uh, they've, they've gone full steam ahead since then to try to drive that point home. I mean, look at everything that's come in the intervening years from 1968 up until the present. Uh, science fiction has largely been used as a way to uh, manipulate the social consciousness and socially engineer us further and further into this belief of what it is that space is supposed to be and uh, kind of steer our minds into this trap and make no mistake about it. It's a trap. Uh, they're obfuscating what the truth is about what we would call space and uh, that what they're presenting us is not a true picture of what it is. So that being the case, this is what they want us to believe is out there. And this is how they're doing it. They use uh, movies and television shows like this to uh, implant the idea in our heads. And then they just keep continually, slowly feeding more and more into that until the point where we see these stupid SpaceX rockets and stuff flying up in the air. And then they put the uh, the film on rewind and, and have it land. <laughs> it looks retarded, uh, but they expect people to believe, oh, we can land these rockets now and reuse these rockets. And, and this is supposed to be like the cutting edge space technology. Uh, we've come so far from the 1960s, haven't we? But uh, so this is what they use to manipulate the public viewpoint of what it is that space is. And that's part of a big part of the game they're playing, because what it is uh, that's really out there, which we can't really say for sure, uh, they're hiding. I'm sure somewhere at the top of the power structure, they have a better idea of what it is and they're hiding. And we could speculate as to uh, some of the things that may be the true nature of space. And we'll probably get there a little later uh, in this episode. But uh, for right now, I mean, we're just looking at, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey. This was put out there as a focal point for man's mind to accept and create the space narrative. And, uh, you know, this is actually one of the primary things that I think NASA's moon missions and other things are built upon is this foundational aspect here that Kubrick put out in conjunction with Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke. And I could tell you, just from doing the esoteric breakdown of some of the things that are in these movies and these books, uh, somebody in the mix there, whether it be Kubrick or the other director that did 2010, what's his name, uh, Peter Hyams, and or Arthur C. Clarke, had a lot of intricate knowledge of uh, some of these mystery school teachings. So that being the case, uh, what we're being presented with uh, in these uh, movies and books, this is an exoteric interpretation of an esoteric idea. And we'll get there as we progress through the, uh, the episode here, but I don't want to take too much longer just to kind of break that down. Uh, we should probably get a move on here because there's a lot to cover. All right. We're going to have to do the breakdown kind of quickly to get through everything, but let's call it what it is. Arthur C. Clarke invented basically the lion's share of technolo technological things we believe in that don't exist. A good example of that is satellites or how the telecom systems work. This is a sci-fi writer who invented it, but let's just lay it down. 2001 and 2010 are intricately warping the human mind to accept space. They're pre-echoing the worst thing that's ever going to happen to the entire world, which is basically 
September 11 and what follows 19 years later, it is going to convince you that we were all monkeys because that's prominent in the storyline. Although I suspect they're claiming they are not monkeys. They are not RH positive. If I I had to venture a guess and more so the black obelisk, this evil thing that turns peaceful monkeys into murderous meat eating things. These are all things that are going to play into it. And don't forget at ground zero, there was the Millennium Hotel, which is stated, and they've since changed the website, but it was openly admitted that they created that hotel in the exact proportion of the black monolith. Jason, let's kind of quickly just break down 2001 and 210 together. Um, And the other thing I would mention is in 2001, the eclipses are important because they show you when an eclipse happens, something has changed. Now new things in the epoch of time are going to switch over. But um, should we just compare and contrast release dates real quick? Because there is so damn much. Um, But let's just do it. So the runtime of 2001 is 142 minutes, which is Zion, the misuse of the number seven as a mind weapon. That breaks down to two hours and 22 minutes. And so 22 is the master builder number. But if you take 2010, the year we make contact, its runtime is 116 minutes, which is the Marty McFly encode of 9-11. And wait for it, one hour and 56 minutes. The first one is 222. The second one is 111. They're counting down. They think they're NASA. Ready? Three, two, one, liftoff. That's the idea that's going on here. Should we include the budgets or do you just want to start burning, Jason? Oh, let's do the budgets because you'll see... (laughs) 2001 was a blockbuster of blockbusters for the time. The budget is said to have been between $10.5 and $12 million, but it grossed at the box office $146 million. That's just absolutely crazy money for that time. It's an 11, of course. And then the second one did all right as well. Uh, Budget was $28 million, and the box office was $40.4 million. So there's your 44. 44 Death's Doors, which also equates to eight, which is also Hollywood's idea of both space is often eight and anything to do with time travel is always eight or 88. Oh, by the way, I want to make sure we get a point clear here. The lenses that uh, Wayne mentioned earlier is called the Carl Zeiss Planar 50 millimeter F-stop 0.7. It's supposedly one of the fastest lenses ever developed for low light shooting, basically, and 10 were only ever made, supposedly for NASA, to shoot the dark side of the moon, which is kind of funny. And it didn't get into 2001. It was in one of Kubrick's later films, uh, Barry Lyndon. One of the most beautifully shot movies you will ever see in your life is Barry Lyndon, because this special man has special access to the basically what Jason's telling you is the best equipment in the world at this time. Right. He was able to buy three of the 10 lenses. Six went to NASA and Carl Zeiss, the company, kept one of them. So what filmmaker in the world would be able to do something like that other than someone like Stanley Kubrick? But yes, what Kubrick ended up doing with it was shooting some scenes with only candlelight. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah. If you go, go look at, you know, I don't usually recommend movies, particularly from these men, because I know who they are. Arthur C. Clarke is a freaking demon in my eyes. Uh, He made up 
these world warping ideas and sci-fi knowing full well in my from my point of view that the the mainstream narrative first they invent a thing that no one will accept that's what sci-fi writers do they normalize it in the mind then pretty soon over time these ideas become more acceptable at that point the mainstream starts telling the lies that warp all of humanity. Yep, remember Arthur C. Clarke and that sci-fi or Jules Verne and that sci-fi we went to the moon? Well, we've done these things now. No, you haven't. No, you freaking haven't. And we can prove it. So to idolize these men is basically to smile at the guy who just stuck a dagger in your back, basically. But all right, let's jump in here, guys. So Arthur C. Clarke, if you don't know who he is, he was a very well-known science fiction writer, and he laid down a lot of concepts decades earlier than they actually came into being, supposedly. So here's a guy who's doing all these things who then works with, considered one of the greatest directors ever. (sighs) How much of this got into 2001 that showed us what space is supposed to be like, for instance, what weightlessness is like, and all those kinds of things? They did all that in the film. And of course, this all came about because of uh, Arthur C. Clarke's notions of what space and space travel would be like. Now, a very stark difference between the book and the film, the book has all these super dark overtones about overpopulation and mass starvation is going to possibly going on on the earth and all these things that aren't in the film at all. You'd never gather that just from watching the movie. Conversely, the movie has all these things showing planetary alignments and eclipses and all these things that the book doesn't even mention. So different approaches to the same storyline with very different meanings. Absolutely. Right. And it's it's spelled out, just to be clear, um, I, I think both of them are a piece of crap. You know, 2001, the movie, sure, it's fun. Sure, it's shock great, but it's like annoying. It's self-aggrandizing. And what the movie doesn't do is imply what any of it means. What the book does is it spells it out. Right, it does. And there are some stark differences between the, the book and the film adaptation. And in fact, there's some important esoteric things that are really spelled out in the book that are kind of missed on screen because people don't have the context on screen. One in particular is... Uh, that hominid in the beginning of the film, when they, they have the monkey people or whatever there that discover the obelisk and stuff. Well, the, the main character in the book uh, of that hominid group, he has a name and his name is Moon Watcher. And that's an important distinction here uh, that people miss in the film adaptation of it, because there's a lot of esoteric uh, meaning just attached to that idea that this one particular individual of this species, first of all, he had a name. And he was the first to really have an individualized consciousness. And he also uh, was an avid watcher of the moon and the stars. And thus, he he had a name in the book Moon Watcher. And this is an important allusion that uh, is made uh, in the book that's kind of missed out on in the film adaptation of it. So uh, without that context, people will miss out on some of the esoteric interpretation of many of these things that are put forward by Kubrick in the film. So uh, that being the case, I mean, I understand uh, he kind of did it in a different fashion as to what was usual for uh, the film genre at that time. Like much of it, he just put to music. It was just a, 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 you know, a scene to music without any dialogue or anything. And honestly, much of the film is very boring, but he was trying to show uh, a lot of the concepts that Arthur C. Clarke captured uh, about space and that kind of thing. And he was also uh, 
showing the story that only initiates of the secret schools would understand uh, in much of that as well. And just to drive a point home, uh, why did Arthur C. Clarke put the C in his name? Why did he put his middle initial up? Well, CC, that's your 33. He was showing people who he is. Uh, so, you know, if, if you want to look at those context clues with a lot of this stuff, you could see there's a different story being told uh, underneath the surface narrative. Okay. And that's the important thing to look at in this film. Not so much the story of, okay, these guys, they go to space and, you know, they discover this monolith or whatever floating around Jupiter and blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, that's all esoteric language. Okay. So if you understand the language of symbolism or symbology and the things that these things are supposed to represent, you see a very different story playing in front of your eyes. And much of the audience in 1968 and still even to this day does not understand. And that's why a lot of people walked away from this film scratching their heads at first. But it also explains why those Hollywood types kind of hold this up on a pedestal as one of the greatest film productions of all time, even though largely the audiences back then were like, what the hell did I just watch? So uh, this is why uh, th these things are encoded uh, very heavily within this film. So it's important to uh, take that context as we look at it. Self-aggrandizing people on the, on the inside knew what was being implied about the monkeys or me and you. Um, but let's, before we jump into the bullets, cause we're going to run low on our one time here shortly. We should also point out that in the book, they flat out state that the rings of Saturn came to be when humanity came to be for whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. And this is going to go back to the, the idea that's being wrestled with all over online, where a lot of people are going to run with the idea that Saturn was once our sun. Okay. Um, you can see where all these things go, but Jason, we better get into the points or we're never going to get there. We should probably make sure people understand that the film implies that the monolith did stuff to humanity to get them to the next level. However, the book spells it out in plain detail that Prometheus was there, not only handing them the fire, but showing them what to do with it. Right. And again, we have the linkage. It's just more sinister. If you go back to Greek myth, Prometheus does not come off as evil. He comes off as having a true concern for living things. Uh, in the book, the monolith is flat. It, it is a beyond evil. It is so all-powerful and all-knowable. It just does whatever it does. But we can gauge what it's done because these peaceful beings are now making weapons and beating the crap out of other living beings. That's direct influence of the monolith, which leads, of course, to space flight, which is made up. But let's just jump in. The, the, the first of Wayne's bullets, to me, feels like a revelation of method. I'm guessing Wayne found it in some of the places I found it. And it is actually written in the pre-forward to the blown out version of the book 2001 now. The computer on board, which causes all the havoc and starts killing people and taking over, is HAL 9000. And it was known, I don't know, what is this, Wayne? Almost back in the 70s, I think, people had figured out that if you add one one letter higher to each of those things, you get IBM. And the funny thing is, is that they're denying that that's anything more than a coincidence. I don't buy that as being a coincidence. I'm pretty sure there was pre-planning there. 
because you, you don't just come up with a name for okay, well, this is this is one of the foils in in our story here. It's a computer. What what could we name it? Let's name it Hal. Gee, that sounds like a great name for a computer, doesn't it? There had to be a rhyme or a reason to it, and I suspect this is probably the rhyme and the reason because at that point, IBM was one of the big dogs in the computer uh, development industry. So they they said let's let's take a play on this and we'll put it in the film. And people won't recognize it right away, but when they do, you know, uh, it'll it'll be a revelation of the method type moment. And and this absolutely, um, you know, plays into that because that that's the whole thing here. Uh, I could buy maybe a coincidence or two uh, with a lot of these different things, but when you see the level of encoding that's been done here, it goes way beyond coincidence. Right. And, you know, it's almost ironic. I mean, what, what's the underlying story here? The computers that are going to be the problem are going to be PCs. <laughs> you know, you, you got to wonder. But this next bullet point is critical, critical, critical. 2001, A Space Odyssey, and 2010, the year we make contact, both represent 21. It's the blackjack idea. And there is a space of nine years between the two stories. Do you see how convoluted the encoding gets here? So both of them encode 21, which is 11, and they're going to put nine years in between them. So somehow, all this time ago, they knew that the most important event in modern humanity was going to be September 11 of 2001. They put it in their titles. They distanced their titles to get the numbers in there. So do you understand who these people are? They're not you and I. They do think that they are not the monkeys. They do think that we are the monkeys or that they want us to believe that we are the monkeys. However, that actually goes. The point is, is they are basically, if you wanted to logically work out what's been done here, your worst enemies. And here we are paying them so that we can be programmed by their black arts. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's definitely a, a big tell here because they represent that blackjack idea in the titles of both with that nine year space between. Uh, and uh, I think uh, the next couple bullet points, you know, there's some important ideas to point out there as well. So 2001 was released in the year 1968, which is, wait for it, 33 years before the events of the story 2001. And we all know what really went down in 2001. The true millennium, by the way, Jason, right? Yes, that absolutely is. It's interesting with this whole storyline, they were proposing a future that is starkly different from the reality. They, they were implying that there would be this massive spacefaring civilization, which isn't even remotely true. If anything, we went backwards from the 60s to the 70s with supposedly what was going on. Right. And another interesting tell here is 2001 and 2010. They're both 21s. Two and one is three. So you have two threes there. So there's your 33 as well. You can see how the encoding goes over and over and over again with a lot of this stuff. They just reinforce uh, the new, these numeric values for the intent that they put behind it uh, because you know numbers have power uh, when they have intention behind them. And, uh, you know, when you can see what the intent is all day long, you can see how they, they more greatly empower these things by using their numerical uh, magic here or whatever you want to call it uh, to reinforce these different ideas and concepts, concepts uh, the reification of these different ideas. So that's kind of what they're doing here. So 33 years. Yeah. And then, you know, you have your nine years between the two. 
And, you know, it, it's not a coincidence that they named it 2001 or 2010 because they got to get their blackjack idea in there. There's the 11 again. Uh, they always uh, hearken back to this broken feedback loop idea, uh, the, the nine and the 11 and these ideas that were put forward and popularized by Crowley about 11 being the evilest of numbers, which isn't really the case necessarily. It's the intention behind it, but it has the potential to be used in an evil way and they use it in an evil way all the time. So that's kind of what they're uh, putting together here. And that's the whole blackjack idea in a nutshell too. Well, let's take it out. So don't be fooled. These people behind the events that brought us these movies in 2001. And then again, COVID they are making the biggest bets of all time. That's another reason they're encoding blackjack. That's a gambling game. They are engaged in the biggest gambles ever known to man. In other words, some of these events is all or nothing, literally all or nothing. If it doesn't work, they are going to go down in flames so freaking hard that it's not even funny to the point where in the book, this is about Saturn in the movie. I don't think they had the huevos to put that, that much out front. Um, so they made it Jupiter and one of the stated reasons is, oh, our special effects aren't good enough to deal with the rings of Saturn. Um, but the truth is, is you know what this is about. You know what all of this is about. Jupiterian ideas are uh, jovial, happy. The Jesus idea of turning the other cheek, that's Jupiterian. Saturn ideas are cold and strict and the opposite. As a matter of fact, if you know anything about the sky clock, opposites are Jupiter and Saturn. Um, and so you can see what's going on here, but don't be fooled. These are gambles. Each event that they do, like 9-11, like COVID, it's a gamble of the largest magnitude imaginable. And they have done so much prepping and putting out of movies and pre-ordering your mind and using computer algorithms probably to figure out the likelihood of success. But at the end of the day, any one of these things could go down in flames. And at some point they will. Nobody wins 100% of the time. Right. But just to drive the point home with that idea, these people, they are masters of game theory. Okay. They, they study game theory to the utmost when they put this stuff together. That's why they're obsessed with algorithms and things of that nature and data collection. Cause the more data they have, uh, the better they could stack their odds in their favor with these gambles that they do make. And it's, it's all based upon game theory. Uh, so that's an important subject for people to really begin to look into. And it does get a little complicated because there's a lot of heavy math involved with it at times. But uh, make no mistake, the people who do a lot of this planning have a very good understanding of game theory. So they always stack the deck in their favor, so to say. So, uh, you know, when you look at things like this, that's why they allegorize blackjack. It's a game to them. OK, and they want to win the game. They are stacking the deck. The house always wins. You see how that goes? And they're the house. That's the way they see it. And they want to win. So they will use that. Uh, uh, what did you say it was? Like a 0.66 was the number that they get? Yeah. 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 So, gee, Enough that's decks. telling too, huh? Yeah. You're going to win. <laughs> You're going to win with those odds. But every time you see the numbers in things that are directly correlating to the takeover of the world um, towards this one world Luciferian idea, uh, the numbers will always be there. And this is a weakness in their bets because when the world wakes up enough 
to understand what words mean simply by using a dictionary. And then you see that specifically these words were used. And then you notice that the dates reduce and you notice that 9-11 is encoded. Those are all tells because they can't not do it, which is double negative. But I think you know what I mean. Anyhow, go ahead, Jason. So 2010 was released in 1984, which is 17 years before the events of 2001 and 26 years before 2010. And of course, there's more esoteric significance to these numbers. 17 represents immortality, rebirth, or victory. And 26 represents the idea of the tetragrammaton, the unspeakable name of God. All right. If you take just the release date, there's got to be a linkage um, to the 9-11 idea. So what is the linkage? And here's a very clever encoding of it. First of all, it's 1984. 1984 will always be a date that matters because of the book 1984, which is part of the blueprint for the world we're entering. But there's also the idea that nobody really truly knows what the date is. We know the date we say is not the date we are. Um, We haven't really figured out all the way around and it gets convoluted because maybe we're using the Coptic calendar or maybe we're using the Julian calendar and it gets so convoluted that without the key we can't know, but let's look at 1984, 17 years before. Here's the encode. Almost always, if it's 2000, you leave the two and the zero out unless it's a period marker. Then you use the entire date. 84 would be eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. That's three, right? 17 would be eight, nine, add the or seven, eight, add the three, nine, 10, 11. There's the 11 you need to convolute and hook it in to the overall idea. Right. And here's another one for you. Eight and four, that's 12, which is the inverse of 21. Now, the book 1984 was written in 1948, the inverse of 84, which is also 12, and inverse is 21. So you have your two 21s, your double blackjack again, your 33. There it's it is. exhausting, man. It is. And it's amazing the level that they encode these things numerically to. And, you know, uh, anyone that would say this is coincidence or accidental or you could, you know, you could do anything with this numerology and and find meaning in anything with it. No, that's not how it works. Uh, There has to be intention there in order for these things to be encoded in that way. So, I mean, they're very specific about what they pick for release dates and run times and all that kind of stuff because it has significance in their little game that they play. Well, the other thing is for any of this to have been grandiosely important to the calendar sky clock game they play, uh, it had to be done on the millennium. Go look back at how the modern Olympics was set because we just shifted it a year because of COVID. But my point here is that everyone would have normally thought, oh, you're starting the modern Olympics, you do it on the millennium. Well, look what they did for 2001. 2001, when 9-11 happened, was actually the millennium. But they got everyone else convinced that in the year 2000, it was the millennium. But we all know there was no year zero when the Vatican and all these other people shuffled around for the, for the Gregorian calendar. There was never a year one. In other words, you have to have a year zero to get from zero to one. So there was no year one, but they convinced everybody that 2000 was the millennium. New York had its big ball dropping. And how did they do it? With Y2K. Right. Y2K is a verbatim 9-11 encode. Break it down. Anyone can look at Y, 2, and K. Y, 7, 8, 9 with the 2, and K is always 11. I mean, a verbatim 
9-11 and code. So the whole Y2K mind warping idea was used to get people to be really concerned about anthrax and Y2K so that nobody would possibly pay attention to the fact that we were celebrating the millennium a year too early. You know why? Because their celebration was going to go down at the Twin Towers in 2001. Right. And just to drive that point home, the, the years known as the 1900s are known as the 20th century. Right. The last year of that century being 2000. Uh, that's why it's the 20th century. And we're, we are in the 21st century now. And, uh, you know, you, you could see that uh, many Black of these Jack. ideas. Right. There it is. The blackjack idea once again. But you could see how these ideas are kind of uh, forgotten about by the public at large because of uh, how we've been indoctrinated and trained through the social engineering. Well, the, you know, there's another side of this. I see people comment, uh, well, Crow 777, is 21. In fact, it is. You want to know what the difference is? Is I have concern for living beings and I don't use the black side of the coin. I use the light side of the coin. Seven is a very special number to me. It's one of those numbers where if you add one through seven, it goes to the perfection number of 10. Seven on its face is actually a very divine, positive number. But like all things in this duality, you can have the other side too, the negative side. So basically any number used, when you double it, you're doubling the meaning of that. If it started out as a godly idea, using 77 would double that. It's just that in the, in the news, we have never seen the godly interpretation of these numbers. We see ion or ion and Zion mind weapons. And when you take it out to three, you get to 21. And the usage that I use in my life, that is divinity. That is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What these folks are doing is something far away from that. So don't be confused. Um, source and intent outline the rules of the game, basically. If you can remember that one thing. Did my TV just tell me this? Ah, okay. I know source. I know intent. Did a person I trust just tell me this. Okay. I know source. I know intent. These are critical, critical things to keep in mind because this allows for plausible deniability by those who want to do bad things. Right. And that whole subjectivity of this whole thing, that is uh, one of the key points here. Okay. And this is something that flies in the face of what we would consider our modern science. Okay. Uh, these subjective ideas, intent, intention is a subjective thing. Uh, they can't readily uh, quantify and measure intent in a scientific, scientifically validating way. So, you know, it, it's one of those things that gets largely discarded in the social engineering of society. People don't accept that your intention could have an, you know, output on your reality, even though uh, some of the modern sciences that they're talking about today actually show that to be the case. Many of these studies and stuff being done where your observation or your intent put onto something could change the outcome. And they refer to this as quote unquote quantum. Okay. So these quantum ideas, the Schrodinger's cat idea, all this stuff, they're just trying to quantify and measure subjectivity in a sense. But uh, that's the whole case. They've kind of disregarded the whole idea of intention with that idea. And they're trying to steer people's minds away from thinking in terms of intention and how your intention could play out in your reality around you. Uh, because they, they largely want to hijack people's uh, executive function, their, their thinking, and steer it only towards negative all the time. And that's what the news media is for. Low. Yep. How low can you go? And let's point out another thing. 
There's nothing that's been done that I have ever seen that I can't equate with a numerical system called basic numerology and higher forms of numerology. Uh, Some people like to go to the higher forms. I don't feel like anyone that I know, very few, are good enough at it to show a correlation without mixing in what they think has happened, which is why I only use the most basic form. But underneath it all is the sky clock. So Jason's about to cover Europa, which is supposedly discovered by Galileo, Leo, Galilee. Now there's a stage name ready, right? Has anyone not read the Bible in the world? Is is everyone not aware of Jesus and Galilee? That name was stage ready like no other. Um, But let's make a point here. The moment that you see a name like Galileo, you should always understand that there is immediately a connection to the sign of Leo, which is basically the sun in the sky clock. And it's also gold. And to prove my point, let's take a word to prove my point. How many times have you seen the word bullion written, right? That's gold or silver bullion. That's booty. It's treasure. You ever taken the time to understand why it's called that? Well, the first part of that word is bull. The second part of that word is lion. Well, why is it bull and lion put together? Well, because the bull represents silver on the zodiacal clock and the lion represents gold on the zodiacal clock. So bull lion or bull yun covers the two most valuable metals in our world, silver and gold. Uh, Have you ever heard of copper bullion? (laughs) Just to make a point, but go ahead, Jason. So two points we want to make here. In 2001, the book, the storyline goes to Jupiter, but slingshots around Jupiter and onto Saturn, where the main story takes place. And the monolith is on or near the Saturnian moon of Iapetus. Now, this slingshot thing is something that the Voyager probes maybe 10 so years later supposedly did. So there's Arthur C. Clarke once again putting this concept of something that's ahead of its time and gets used in reality, quote unquote. The film, of course, goes to Jupiter. The whole Saturn thing is disregarded. The excuse is that they couldn't get the special effects to work right. And instead, the monolith is hanging out around the moon of Europa. So from that point on with the subsequent sequels, everything is ignored about the Saturn idea. And both Arthur C. Clarke and the second film, 2010, focus just on the Jupiter thing. And in 2010, they are going to the moon of Europa. Europa supposedly has some life growing on it. And the same Promethean concepts that were done on Earth by the monolith are now being done on Europa. This is the implication, which is further explored later on in 2061 and then finished in 3001, which is the last part of the series that Arthur C. Clarke wrote in the 90s. So Jason, before you read the bullet point on Europa, let's ask a simple question. We're going to be told Galileo Galilee discovered an important thing that's used in this narrative, which we know is warping minds. That's what it's there for. It's why it exists. Other than the function it will serve towards the move to a one-world takeover, there would be no need to do these things. So is Galileo Galilee who we think he is? And all this time ago, whenever that might have been, can we show that it's connected to the events of 2001? I'll let Jason read the bullet point, and then I'll show you. I'll just freaking show you how far back this goes. So as we said, Europa is one of the primary focuses in 2010, both the book and the movie. Europa was ostensibly discovered by Galileo Galilee on January 8th, 1610, named after the Greek myth of Europa, the etymology of Europa from the Greek euros, 
meaning wide, and ops, op, opt, meaning I. Eyes wide shut, anyone? No, I'm making a bad pun there. But just to reiterate, Galileo Galilee is a made-for-the-stage name. It is so acceptable the moment you hear it. I can't imagine a better stage name that's going to go into the book, the history books. It's almost like Leonardo da Vinci. They'd call me uh, Crow San Diego if I was going to be named in the same way. Um, But to get to the point, supposedly, this very important moon of Jupiter, which is going to show up in this mind-warping movie franchise that's moving towards 2001, is discovered on January 8th. 1610, while the, the end date alone, 1610, is a Marty McFly encode of 911, where they invert the nine. Now let's take January 8th. Well, that's a one and an eight, that's a nine. So it's 911 forwards and backwards. Um, but when it comes to the naming of this thing they're using in the storyline, first of all, it's connected to those heroes of Greek, Greek myth, which end up getting their butts kicked at Troy, which end up leaving Troy to go found Rome where all roads leave, it means I, singular, opt, the one I. Like the, the, you know, it could be equated to the biblical idea of the synoptic gospels. I think the one that is not synoptic is the book of John, but the other three are said to see with one eye. Do you get why it's called synoptic? Because your higher spiritual functions and abilities as a human being, both dark and light, are represented in the optic thalamus, that one eye. In other words, when you activate your optic thalamus and get to that lofty, lofty level, whether you're Darth Vader or whether you're Luke Skywalker, supposedly, um, it doesn't matter. It can go either way, but they don't all of a sudden say, oh, he's, he's activated his third eye. Now he's got three eyes. You know what they say? Now he sees with one eye. He doesn't even need the other two is the descriptive idea of opening the optic thalamus. So there's all that from Galileo. Galilee whenever he may or may not have existed. In other words, doesn't matter. The storyline was written. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. There it is. Galileo Galilee. GG. That's a 7-7. There's your Ion Zion mind weapon once again. Uh, written right in there. Uh, the January 8th of 1610. There's your 1-8. That's an 18. That's triple six. Uh, you, you see how like it's layers upon layers upon layers of encoding with this eye open his eye is open see that that's the whole thing the primary focus of this movie especially the 2010 movie is uh it's talking about evolution an evolutionary jump and we'll get to that a little bit more later there's just so many uh, different esoteric ideas bound up in this uh, whole thing and also the the reason why they ostensibly switched from saturn to jupiter we'll cover that a little bit more extensively later i'm guessing probably an hour or two we'll get there but uh, there are different reasons for this and they're based upon some of the belief systems of those who actually run the show in this world uh, the things they're trying to do and are endeavoring to do uh, to the bulk of humanity and also uh, for themselves in order to advance uh, so, so we'll get there and we'll show, uh, you know, some different levels of meaning with that stuff. But just to drive the point home, just keep in mind, whenever you see Galileo, Galilee, and there's that Leo idea uh, bound up in there, just like Crow had mentioned, and the 7-7, uh, showing you the weaponization of that, uh, you could see, you begin to see things with, the, uh, you know, a, a new kind of viewpoint. And uh, they... They focus heavily on Europa. So I figured, let's do a little digging into Europa, and I'm sure we'll get there 
uh, as we proceed on as well. Well, they also use the idea of Hollywood's encoding of space or time travel because those two things are the same in the eyes of Hollywood. January 8th, there's your eight, and 1610 or 1610 is another eight. So there's your look at any time travel movie you want, and you'll see 88s and eights all over it. And almost every time there's space shenanigans going on you'll see it represented by but all right so in the second hour there there is so much we haven't covered but here's the thing about our world man you you think all the world's a stage isn't true it's worse than that all the world is sci-fi all this stuff we believe in there are major portions of it that don't even exist and yet we act as if we go outside with our cell phone and damn well there's a satellite up there making it work Uh uh-uh arthur c clark is a sci-fi writer. He invented the idea of satellites. Here's one of the greatest movies of all time, which actually sucks. Um, 2001, showing you what space looks like and damned if right after they released this movie, NASA didn't actually put boots on the moon. Uh Uh-uh. You can't put a boot on the moon, turns out, at least not in the way we think of it. It's a luminary. And people all the way back in time were writing about this. And even people in the 50s, uh, well-respected PhDs were saying NASA can't do what they're claiming they're about to do because the moon's plasma or the moon's this or the moon's that. And these people are marginalized out of existence. In other words, the point I am making is in the same way television is one of the biggest banes to modern humanity, sci-fi is right there with it. From the very first sci-fi Frankenstein is usually labeled that. You are looking at the animation of a dead corpse. There's the beginning of the genre, the corpseration, the dead thing brought back to life. And as it progresses, we get up to people like Jules Verne, one of the greatest writers of all time, right? Well, he's one of the first people to write, we're going to the moon. And Jules Verne is encoded in so many of the kind of operations that we see. And you know why? Because they're giving the nod to the person who created the unbelievable idea to begin its path of normalization and then eventually acceptability and then eventually the perception that it's real. Jason, anything you want to add before we wrap up? So there's a whole bunch of esoteric stuff we haven't even gotten into yet that we will definitely cover in an hour or two. But just keep in mind that the book was your boring scientific approach. Stanley Kubrick, with his planetary alignments and eclipses, went a very different way with 2001. You can even look at crazy stuff like when you see the Discovery model in the movie, it's got three engines on the back, each with a hexagon shape. There's your 666. Right. Anyhow, we're going to come back in hour two. We're going to open up with the black monolith. And there is so much in this idea that we could have just done a whole show. And need I remind everyone, the Millennium Hotel at Ground Zero was built with a perfect view of the events of that day uh, to the specs of the black monolith. Go look it up if you think I'm kidding. And by the way, this used to be touted on the website. I don't know if it still is because there was a period of time where that information was removed from the website. But go look at a, a map of the place and see where the black monolith was in 2001. The Earth Odyssey, not the movie, right? The real movie. But there it is. That brings hour one of episode 329 to a close. Um, Join us all at crow777radio.com for hour two. This will be a Lulu, no doubt. That's C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com for the full two-hour or two-hour-plus show. Again, we're jumping in with the Black Monolith, and I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. There it is, man. Cheers. 
belief is the enemy of knowing.